Nice to be here. Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas. And uh, these are uh, good times. It's a wonderful service this morning. I know we have some other things going on. But one thing that's been uh, pretty common with us, and you, you new folks uh, probably already understand this, is we're not looking at the clock so we can be out at 12 or 12.15 and get to a buffet line. That's not the way things work here at church. So years ago, I went to preach. I had the great privilege of preaching in a fellowship in Romania, and I had been asked to preach the message that night. This was the Sunday evening service, and I got up and preached, preached a full message, and thought, okay, we're going to wrap things up. We're going to go home for the night. I'm kind of tired. We've been traveling. I go to sit down, and another brother gets up in the pulpit and has everybody open his their Bibles, and he starts to preach, and I'm asking myself, what, what is going on here? And uh, our, our Russian and Eastern European brethren take the Scripture in Corinthians very seriously when it says, if any man prophesies or preaches in the church, let it be by two or three and let the others judge. So they will literally preach. They'll have two or three preachers preach in, 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 a, in a, uh, a Sunday uh, service. You go to a Russian church, a Romanian church, it's pretty common. So they weren't concerned about what time they got out that night. I think it was in, uh, oh, I can't remember where that was, but uh, uh, Targovica in, in Romania. We got out late that night. So that's why we have a meal here. You don't have to worry about leaving for the buffet line. Nobody wants to do that any, 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 anyway nowadays. But we're just going to make sure God's word gets preached this morning because the preaching of the word, uh, the worship of God is important, but we worship him through the preaching of his word. And I want to make sure, that's my duty, is to make sure you guys get something to feed on spiritually. So let's don't worry about the time. Let's make sure that what God wants declared this morning is declared. And then we can rejoice together over those baptisms and over a meal together. So turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. I'm going to do my best. I originally wanted to talk about uh, uh, the seeds of of. of the rapture of the church in the Old Testament today, this Sunday. But I'm going to go ahead and spread it out over two Sundays um, so that we're not rushed. And uh, there's a stopping place I'd like to get to today that I think will be appropriate. So just indulge me, bear with it, bear with me a little bit, and we'll see what the Lord does. The last few weeks, this Advent season, we've been looking at Proverbs 11 some of the principles written there and how they translate into what I would call some unsung details or some unsung heroes in the Christmas story or the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Guys, it's the unsung details and the unsung heroes that often are used most of the Lord. I had no idea all those many weeks ago when we were being criticized by pastors, by Baptist pastors in this state were criticizing us openly because we chose to go out and preach on a street corner in Hickory when our governor said we needed to stay at home. They thought a message that talks about America being an insane asylum run by the inmates is not a message we as Christians should be preaching, even though that was a statement made by a Baptist preacher many years ago. We as a ministry lost support from those who had been supporting our missions work because we went out and preached. 
that particular day. But it's those things, those unsung things that seem to have no significance, what a lot of people will tell you have no value practically or that God won't use, that God does use. And as Brother Grant shared here this morning, God used that. And he's added a family to this church and a brother's going to be baptized today. It isn't anything that I did. We just went out there to preach. So those are the things God uses. And that means he can use you. That means as a Christian, you don't have to have a seminary education like I do. You don't have to travel all over the world like I've been blessed to do. God can use you. And he may even use you better than he can use me. See, my education and my travel experience could be a hampering. Because those of us that do stuff like that, we start tending to think that we've got it figured out better than God. And get away from the simple truth of the scriptures. There were some folks in that Christmas narrative who, in my opinion, are unsung heroes, who not only claimed to believe something, but they lived as if they really believed it. And that's what we've been talking about. And we've been looking at Proverbs 11. We talked about Simeon and Anna, how they understood their hope didn't die with them. We looked at the wise men. The wise men did not carry out the executive order of a tyrant and went home another way. We talked about Joseph. Joseph took care of his family and immediately obeyed the Lord and was his instrument to make sure that Jesus was delivered from the wrath of Herod and that Mary and Joseph, I mean that Mary and the baby ultimately got home to Nazareth as the prophets prophesied that Jesus' ministry would come out of Galilee. Joseph was an instrument of God's bringing about prophetic fulfillment. Mary did not put her health and safety first like we're told we should do. Being great with child, she went with Joseph to to Bethlehem, about a 90-mile trip. When Christ's birth was imminent. And now we're going to look a little bit today at uh, the shepherds and how they are an example of something here in Proverbs 11. We've looked at verses 7 through 10. We kind of did it out of order. I won't review, but verse 11. By the blessing of the upright... The city is exalted. And then here's the antithesis to that. But it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. So what we have here are two different types of people that can profoundly affect the well-being of a society or a city. And it's what they do with their mouths that uh, uh, affects it. We have the upright and we have the wicked. By the blessing of the upright, an entire city can be exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it can be overthrown or trashed. That word blessing there in the original language is where, uh, if, if if you've ever been around Jewish folks that are doing their little traditions, a lot of times they don't have anything to do with the scriptures, but... Uh, in, in, in our uh, uh, interaction with Israelis and our love for that people in the sharing of the gospel, anytime there's a little religious tradition around a holiday or around the weekly Sabbath, you'll hear in Hebrew, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed be the Lord our God. Comes out of the scriptures. Baruch, there was a man in the book of Jeremiah named Baruch. That's where we get the word blessing. So this word blessing, the blessing of the upright, comes from that same word blessed. Beracha, to bless. You can't bless something in Hebrew culture unless you open your mouth. 
To bless something is to declare it. Just like Jacob blessed the sons of, of Joseph leaning upon the top of his staff. And his blessing was a declaration. And it was in faith. And Hebrews says that his faith is something we ought to be modeled. Okay? So by the blessing which involves speaking of the upright, a city is exalted. So when the upright bless, that means they speak. It means they declare. But to bless also, as we see in the life of Jacob, isn't just to say something. It's to live as if you believe it. Joseph um, did that. He lived and he spoke and then he lived as if he believed it. He spoke concerning what the children of Israel to do, were to do with his bones. And all those years later, they carried them back and buried them in Shechem there in the land of Israel. But Joseph made provision. He carried out. He did as if he believed what he blessed or said. Now, I think we see this in the Christmas narrative. I like looking at the scriptures, not only in the original language, but in other languages that I'm privy to speak, Spanish, Nepali. And I'm almost finished reading the entire Bible in Spanish. And it's interesting to see words that are chosen. Here in Proverbs 11, the upright are the rectos, por los rectos. That word recto is where it comes from an English word, rectitude or erect. There's an old English word, uh, uh, rectitude. Rectitude is moral uprightness. It's a guy that stands up straight. He is what he is. He's not putting on a face. He's morally upright. So in other words, he lives and acts as if he believe, believes what he claims. That's what an upright person is. Somebody that, they, that you, you, see, you get what you see. And it's consistent. And it's morally upright. It's those that not only say something, but live as if they believe it. That's what this the church needs today. We got a lot of people in America in our churches that claim to believe God. They claim to trust in Him. They claim to do all this, but they're living right now in these times as if they don't believe it. They're hiding in their homes. They're scared of every, what somebody might think. No fear of God. But it's by the blessing of the upright that a city is exalted. It's the mouth of the wicked trashes a city. In Spanish, the verb there, overthrown, trastornar, means to trash. That's what's there in the Spanish Bible. By the mouth of the wicked, a society is trashed. And I think we see that today. The epitome, the pinnacle of wickedness in this country, the very pinnacle, in my opinion, one man's opinion is the news media. The news media is the most well-funded terrorist organization on this planet. Some of the most evil, diabolical, wicked people in our society are on the TV screen every night telling us how we ought to live our lives and acting as if they know better. Turn them off. It's by their filthy mouths that this whole society has been trashed because we're addicted to the fear porn that they throw out there every night. Turn them off. None of this stuff is new. The Bible talks about these things. So we need to be those that are upright and declare truth. That's how this society rejoices, not by the garbage coming out of the mouth of the news media. Politicians, too, they rank up there right near the top. Both parties, both of them. Mm -hmm. 
Democrat and Republican. They're trashing our society. We need the blessing of the upright. And we see that in the Christmas narrative. There were those who by their blessing, by their declaration, the entire city rejoiced. Who was that? Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 16 through 18. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Who was that? The shepherds. The Bible says in Proverbs that when the feet are hasty to do anything, it's sin. Haste in the life of a believer in anything except to carry out God's word is sin. These shepherds were hasty to do what they were told by God's messengers. They were hasty to do God's word. That's good haste. All this other haste in our society, oh, I got to do this and do that's not, you're going to end up stumbling into a pit. But these guys were hasty. They made haste to go and do what they had been told and to see the testimony of the angels. So they didn't just believe what the angels said, they proved it by going to find that babe in Bethlehem. We've talked about how they knew where to go in Bethlehem. I won't get into that. Old Testament tells us where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, not in a stable, in a tower, the tower of Adar, the tower of the flock. But we won't get into that. When they had seen it, verse 17, this is what's important here. Here's the blessing of the upright. When they had seen Mary, Joseph, and the baby, what did they do? They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They declared to others abroad the news of the Messiah. And all they that heard it, what? Wondered. To wonder is a good thing. It's very closely tied to rejoicing. It gave them hope in dark days. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And then go down to verse 20. And what did the shepherds do? They returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Man, there's some some important verbs there that get overlooked in the Christmas story. Making known abroad. Told them by the shepherds. Praising and glorifying God. Guys... By the blessing of the upright, Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the environs of the day were were, uh, given cause for rejoicing. These guys, these poor old shepherds, these Levitical shepherds didn't just, oh, why, this is great. We believe this. We believe what was spoken by the angels. They went out and they declared it. They declared truth concerning the Messiah. And as a result... All those around who ever heard them wondered and were blessed. Guys, that's what we need to be about in these days. Turn off the news. Stop worrying about all this garbage. They're all liars anyway. And the ones that do at least claim to stand for something are no better than half the kings of of Judah and Israel because they're afraid of what the people might think if they actually stand on what they claim to believe. But by the blessing of the upright, declaration concerning the Messiah, this society can rejoice. And that's what we need to be about. We need to be about declaring the things 
that I've had the privilege to highlight from the scriptures these last few weeks. Last week we talked about the imminency of Christ coming for his church. It's like overhanging. It could happen at any time. Not Christ's second coming to judge the world, but his coming to snatch the church. And we talked about how just as Christ's birth was imminent when Mary headed for Bethlehem with Joseph, so is his coming for his bride imminent. It could happen at any time. And we need to be ready for that. And we need to do what the shepherds did. We need to preach that so people will be ready, so people will be convicted, so people will repent and trust Jesus Christ and be a part of the church so they too can escape what is coming to this earth. Paul says the rapture of the believer is a mystery. It's a mystery. If it's a mystery then it is something revealed in the New Testament that is enfolded in the Old. I've already taught in here about the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, the rapture of God's people, his, the catching away of His people before He pours out His judgments as listed there in Revelation. We've talked about that from the New Testament. But I want to talk today and next Sunday about the seeds of that in the Old Testament. Because this is not a New Testament doctrine. All prophetic New Testament doctrine as related to Jesus the Christ has its seed in the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is not one God in the Old, another God in the New. It's not you believe the Old, I believe the New. It's all the same. It's God's Word. There is no contradiction here. And Jesus Christ didn't come to replace God's law. He fulfilled it. And when something is fulfilled, it's no longer a means to an end. It is the end. And by that fulfillment, we can have life. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of God. Not only in word and in deed, but in motivation and in heart. Because He was perfect, we can have His righteousness imputed to us by faith. And it doesn't matter what we've done or what we're involved in. God can take away our sins because of what Jesus has done. God can take away our sins. When the angel came to Mary there in Nazareth, she was told to call his name Jesus. Joseph too. Because what? He will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He can save us because He fulfilled the law. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Paul stated something very simple. It's very simple, but it's almost like we can't comprehend the power of it. He talked about having the same spirit of faith that the psalmist once had. And then he quotes Psalm 116. Remember that psalm we looked at last week? Precious in the eyes of the Lord or the death of His saints. Death is a bad thing for the wicked, but for the saints, it's precious. And it is deliverance. It is God delivering His people. But Paul said, we have the same spirit of faith. We believe, therefore we speak. Don't pay any attention to this garbage that these sissy preachers throw out there about, oh, you know, everywhere I go, I preach the gospel, and maybe I'll use words. That's not biblical. Paul said, we believe, therefore we speak. The shepherds believed, therefore they declared the news of the Messiah. It's because I love you that I'll tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Just like two kids playing in a freeway. 
Love bids a warning doom to children playing in the freeway. Doesn't ignore them. Doesn't pat him on the head. I'll grab a kid by the, the, the scruff of his neck and drag him out of a highway and scrape him up real good if it saves him from the oncoming Mack truck. But Paul said, we believe, therefore we speak. Do we believe and therefore speak? Do we believe and therefore bless and declare so that our society is benefited? That's the question. The psalmist did. If we believe that Christ can come at any moment, and if we've been given knowledge of this mystery, do we declare it? Do we live as if we believe it? If we live as if we believe it, we're going to warn people. We're not going to sit in our homes and be, you know, oh, Christ is going to come for us. We don't need to worry about this or that. We need to be like the shepherds. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, that the rapture of the church is a mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. Remember, Paul thought Christ would come for his church in Paul's lifetime. It didn't happen. So when the end of his life came, he was content to die just like Simeon. Because even that's deliverance. Jesus his coming has been imminent for his church since the dawn of the church age at Pentecost. It could come at any time. Paul called it a mystery. We talked about the rapture of the church when I was, or we talked about mystery. What is a mystery in the scriptures? Back when I was in Revelation 10. Revelation 10 to 7 talks about a time when the mystery of God will be revealed. What is a mystery? <clears throat> We highlighted Romans 16 in Ephesians 3. Romans 16, 25, and 26. If you guys want to write that down, I won't go there. Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. These verses teach us that a mystery is something that is made manifest by the Scriptures. It's something that was hidden in times past, but is made manifest by the Scriptures. It's information that was veiled. In the Old Testament, but it's declared and explained in the New. Now, some, when something is veiled, that doesn't mean it's absent. And the truth of God's mysteries can only be comprehended by special revelation. That's why God gave us a New Testament. He told Israel, I'm going to give you a New Testament, Jeremiah 31. The New Testament, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I, Israelis come into my home... I always have the Old Testament there to knock on the bottom and I'll have the New Testament, the Greek called the Shah, sitting on the top. And my explanation is this Old Testament is the foundation of God's truth. The New Testament affirms it to be true. It's the building erected atop. A mystery is veiled in the Old, it's unveiled in the New. That's the nature of a mystery. And our understanding of it can only come by God's special revelation, His Spirit through the prophets and the apostles as written and preserved in the Scriptures. Paul speaks of a mystery in Ephesians 3, the mystery of the church. What is the church? The gathering together of Jews and Gentiles by faith in Messiah as a special program, as a special program to put, to make Israel ashamed and to bring about her ultimate restoration and to accomplish God's plan and purpose in the world. 
The church is a mystery. Jew and Gentile together as one body in Christ is a mystery. So anything related to the church and God's program for it is also a mystery. And Paul said that the mystery was made known to him by revelation. And that we, when we read, can therefore understand. And that it's revealed by the Spirit. These, this is the nature of a mystery. Okay? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the rapture is a mystery. So if it is a mystery of God, that means it is veiled in the Old Testament and is unveiled in the New. So that the New and the revelation there confirms what's already there in the Old and vice versa. Can we find it there? If the church is a mystery, it's certainly veiled there in the Old Testament. We have types of the church. Israel was a type of the church in the wilderness. We have direct prophetic references to it that Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles and many Gentiles would come to him. That's not in the New Testament. That's there in the prophet Isaiah. And I often mention that when I'm, when I'm talking with Jewish folks. Look, the fact that I'm talking to you right now about your Messiah is proof that your Bible is true. I'm just a Gentile. My, my ancestors long ago bowed down to wood and stone and, 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 and statues. But now I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so too must you. If the mystery Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15 is the pre-trib rapture of the church prior to God's coming to judge the world through all that stuff that scares everybody in the book of Revelation, and it should, can we find its seeds veiled in the Old Testament and therefore affirm what we've, what we've taught, what we've been teaching here from the New and I'll say the answer is an overwhelming yes. And I just want to look at that today. I want to encourage you with the mystery of God's deliverance of his church, his soon, the soon coming rapture of the believer, not just in the familiar passages of the new. Go back when I was in Revelation 4. If you want to go back, we got to 4 verse 1. I preached on the biblical doctrine of the rapture of the church prior to the time of Jacob's trouble or the coming judgment. There's a couple of messages there. I encourage you to go back and listen. That's when we talked about 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, the message to the church at Philadelphia. We talked about all those classic passages in the New Testament. I want to go back to the old now. I want to go back to the old. So Revelation 4, 1, I, I preached many, many months ago in our study of Revelation on that. Go back and listen. You'll be blessed by it. You might also want to listen to the messages about the nature of biblical prophecy. It's very important to understand the nature of Old Testament prophecy. It's full of prophetic types and antitypes. The lives and the examples of people are types that prophetically point to future fulfillment either in Christ or His church or the nation of Israel. There are antitypes, which are the ultimate prophetic fulfillments. In the book of Isaiah, we have prophecy again, or in the book of Daniel, we have prophecy related to the Greek king Antiochus who arose and persecuted Israel about 160 years before Jesus was born. He was a type of a future tyrant, Antichrist, who will come and do the same. John the Baptist was prophesied. He is a type of the ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Elijah before the day of the Lord. Old Testament prophecy also has a dual fulfillment. 
The prophet will prophesy something way out in the future about the coming kingdom. And then he'll talk about something in the near future that will be proof to those living in that day that what's been talked about way out there is going to come true. So we have near horizon fulfillment and far horizon fulfillment. I've talked about that too. You can find that in these messages on Revelation that are posted online. So just keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 tells us something very important when we look at the Old Testament and when we see God's prophecies, His Word there, and how it's confirmed and fulfilled in the New and how all is one concerning the Word of God. Paul makes something very important. This is why the history of Israel and the Old Testament stories are so important. They are God's Word. Now these things, he's talking about Israel and its disobedience in the wilderness and all this. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Gentile believers. These things happen to them for ensamples. An ensample is something fuller and deeper than an example. They were types. They were types. They happened for a reason to teach us and to point to future fulfillment and future judgment. These things happened to them for in samples, and they were written for what? Our admonition, our warning, who is us upon whom the ends of the world are come. We are so much closer today and at the end of 2020 to the ends of the world than Paul was when he wrote this epistle. But those things written in the Old Testament were written to warn us particularly us living in days when signs of judgment are all around. Wherefore, because of that, verse 12, let him that thinketh he stands take heed lest he fall. That's talking to us. When you think you've got it figured out and you think you stand, take heed because there's a lot of examples of that in the Old Testament of men who claimed to fear God and when the going got tough, the tough got hiding and wimping out. So take heed because that could be us very easily. We seem to think here in our modern society that because I can Google anything on an iPhone or because I've got Wi-Fi in my car, in my home, that I'm suddenly smarter than anyone that's ever lived. And because I can go on Google and, and do, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Mayo Clinic online or go figure out. Don't, don't go look up symptoms online. It always ends with cancer. If you got symptoms and you try to figure out online what's wrong with you, it'll, if you go to the hospital, it's always COVID. If you go to Google, it's always cancer. And you're going to be scared of that. So just because we can search things doesn't make us better than the guy that lived before. We have the same human nature, the same fallen nature in need of a Savior. And there's nothing new under the sun. And we are very arrogant to look back in history and judge people that lived in complex times and faced complex issues as if we would somehow be, do it different. That's the height of arrogance. Wise people don't judge history. They learn from it. But these things were written to warn us. They are types. And we have types in the Old Testament of the rapture of the believer the rapture of the church to escape the wrath of God that's coming to this world. We have types, as should be expected with a mystery. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. We have a type of the rapture of the believer. 
that is an example of what will take place one day with the church very soon. And that should be expected for a mystery. Genesis 5, 21. This is the generation of Adam down to Noah. Okay, there are no gaps here. I believe this is legitimate history. And there's plenty of science to back it up. Guys, science is a pursuit. Science comes from the Greek word. It's a stem that's also found in our English word conscience. Conscience means con, with. Con is with in Spanish too. Science or with knowledge. Science is a pursuit of knowledge. It doesn't mean that those who pursue knowledge always come to the truth. So it's a false dichotomy to try to say, I believe in science. I follow the science. You can follow the pursuits of men all day long. It doesn't mean they come to the truth. If they did, then there wouldn't, wouldn't constantly be discoveries in the pursuit of knowledge that contradict what was believed and accepted before. So the pursuit of knowledge, the exercise of science is fine. I'm all for it. I'm a scientific man. But we need to be willing to pursue knowledge where it takes us and not where we want it to go. That's the problem with a lot of so-called science today. It's actually sorcery. It's not science. There's a lot of common sense science that we can apply in our lives today as Christians. Stuff we learned in elementary school that's proven that could give us a lot of good direction on health and safety that we suddenly forget. But science is the pursuit of knowledge. Okay? And we ought to be on that pursuit, but we need to make sure we're willing to go where the truth takes us. And that means those of you who have certain political persuasions and you like to read certain news, uh, 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 news sources online because they're pro this or they're anti that, make sure you're willing to read and call something what it is. There's plenty of news on the right that's just as much fake news as that on the left. And sometimes we're too blind. We don't want to see that. We want to think a certain thing about a certain politician. We don't want the truth. Maybe there's some of you in here that don't want the truth about Trump. Maybe you don't want the Trump truth about Mike Pence because you think he's a paragon of a believer. Did you forget about when he was governor of Indiana? When he had a chance to take a stand and capitulated? Did you wonder about him when he had to parade himself on TV, get a little vaccine? How do you know what was even in there? If you got a Show me what you're doing to convince me to do something. You must not be too convinced that it's worthwhile. Something's right. I don't have to see celebrities and politicians doing it to do it. But are we willing to question things in the pursuit of truth? We should be. What ought to guide us is not what we hear on our favorite media website. What ought to guide us isn't the gateway pundit or Breitbart or any of that. What ought to guide us is this. And when this guides us, we ought to be willing to call evil evil and good good. Even if the source of it is not what we want to be evil and good. Jonah learned that lesson. Jonah didn't like the fact that God was going to spare Nineveh. He didn't like the fact that the king and the people of Nineveh, wicked people, barbarians humbled themselves and repented. It made him mad and he went and sulked outside the city. 
And God's like, what? And then God asked him, he said, have you even considered that there's 180,000 little children in that city that don't know their difference between the right and left hand? And what about all the cattle? Should I just destroy all that? So Jonah learned that the hard way. But I believe what we see here in Genesis is history. I believe it can be trusted. The genealogies are there for a reason. But we get to verse 21 of chapter 5. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Enoch was born when all of his predecessors were still alive. In fact, Adam did not die until Enoch was 308 years old. So when God took Enoch, he, it was only 50, it was less than 60 years after Adam finally died. We tend to forget that all these patriarchs overlapped. Noah uh, was alive up until just before Abraham was born. Shem was alive after Isaac was born, long after. Abraham was alive long enough to see Esau and Jacob. But it says that Enoch walked with God and God took him. The verb there in Hebrew means to snatch or to seize. It's also a verb that would be used when the Old Testament talks about taking a wife. It's what a husband does when he takes a wife. The marriage imagery. God took Enoch. You know what's funny? When I open up my Hebrew New Testament that I like to give to Jewish people God puts in my path, when I go to John 14, 3, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you to myself. It's funny. In my Hebrew New Testament, the same Hebrew verb in John 14, 3, I will receive you to myself, is the exact same verb used here when God took Enoch. He seized him. He took him. He snatched him. 300 years earlier when Enoch had a son named Methuselah, his name is interesting. It's a prophecy. Enoch at that point began to take God and his judgment seriously. And he named his son prophetically. Methuselah in Hebrew means when he dies, the judgment will come. He's the man of the dart. When he dies, the dart hits the target. Judgment will come. Well, guess what? Guess what came the year that Methuselah died? The flood. His death signified it. Judgment was coming and it was known long before it came. That's why Enoch named his son. It was known long before it came, just like we've known long before it's come, it will come. God never pours out judgment without warning people. That's what makes him different than the wicked and false gods of men. If you study, I've, I've had the privilege of living in a lot of places around the world. I've lived amongst Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and dark corners. 
And the gods of their traditions just act flippantly. They act like us because they are the projections of human nature. They just do what they want to do. They change their mind. They go back and forth. And their followers are afraid of them. The patron deity of Nepal is the Hindu god Shiva, the destroyer, Apollyon. We know him by another name in the scriptures. The father of lies. They don't love him. They don't want him coming around. They fear Shiva, the destroyer. In fact, they pay these priests to go around and blow trumpets in the neighborhood to keep him away. Flippant. Shiva changes his mind all the time. He'll just destroy people for no reason in their mind. That's not God. God never dispenses judgment without warning. He's a loving God. And you never see that in the scriptures. And you didn't see it when the flood came. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Enoch was a righteous man who had a testimony. He walked with God. And then what did God do? He took him. When did he take him? He took him at an unknown point when before the judgment came. Enoch is a type of the church. He was taken out by God sometime before the judgment at a time when nothing else had to happen. He took him. He walked with God and God took him. But then Noah. If you go down, Noah, it was prophesied, would comfort the people because of what God, concerning the work and toil of men's hands, Noah's father knew Noah would be used by God to do something, to bring comfort because of the ground which God had cursed. Noah, was he taken out? No. Was he protected and preserved? Yes. Noah and his whole house, eight people were preserved through the judgment that began with clear signs. It was known when Methuselah dies, the judgment will come. And in that judgment, Noah and his family were preserved. Noah is a type of Israel that when the clear signs come to pass, that must come to pass first, Israel will be preserved through that tribulation judgment. We have a type of the rapture of the believer before the flood. Enoch, same verb, God took him as is used in Hebrew in John 14 in the Hebrew New Testament when God talks about taking his people and receiving them, Jesus to himself. Now what's interesting is this same Enoch who was taken, who was raptured out, was also a preacher. He prophesied, he preached, And he prophesied about the coming of the Lord way off in the future to judge the world. The flood would come, the near horizon judgment, and it would prove the far horizon, what God would one day do. Jude references Enoch and his preaching. It's that little book right before Revelation. Verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam... If you read the genealogy there, Enoch was the seventh from Adam. You know, I, they used to teach me in seminary that the genealogies had a lot of gaps and people they didn't include. Well, okay, fine. If that's true, then we can't trust the New Testament either because Enoch is the seventh from Adam, just like it's revealed in the, New Test, the Old Testament. That's what Jude said. The house of cards comes crashing down if you go that route. I'll choose to believe God's word. It's proved itself true time and time again. I forget who it was. It may have been Spurgeon that said there's never been an observable proof 
science that has clearly contradicted the scriptures. And I would agree with that. I would, I've never found one. And I've looked for it. I've tried to find it. I've wanted to find it at, at, at a time in my life when my heart was rebellious against the Lord. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his what? His saints to execute judgment upon all. There's coming a time when God, or God will come to judge the people of this world. And when he does it, he doesn't come to get his saints. He comes to what? He comes with his saints. Enoch, the same one who was taken out, prophesied of a day when God would return to judge the world with his saints. So Enoch himself not only was a type of the church, he saw the church coming with God to execute judgment. Just like we see there in Revelation 19. When we, we didn't read the Christmas story on Christmas morning in my home because we read it a lot here in church and I knew we would at family's house. I wanted my kids to draw their attention to two chapter 19s that really are the culmination of what Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is. John 19, and he bearing his cross went to a place called Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him. And then Revelation 19, behold, I saw heaven opened. John wrote both of them. And there was one who sat on a white horse. And the armies of heaven came with him, clothed in linen, white and clean. Revelation tells us that white linen is the righteousness of the saints. That's the saints. Enoch saw this. He was a type of the rapture of the believer taken out before the judgment. We have that seed there in the Old Testament. Turn to Genesis 19. We have another type of God's deliverance before he pours out judgment. Enoch was... The aspect of the church that walks with God. He's the Philadelphian believer who believes the word of God. And therefore he is delivered from the hour of temptation. We have another one who's also one of God's. He's also a just man. But he's weak. And he's fearful. But by God's grace he too is delivered. There's a big part of the church today that's weak and fearful. People that have been born again have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and there's no excuse for that fear. But what, when, when, when a man comes to Christ, nothing can pluck him out of God's hand. I don't make excuse for the fear, but there's hope for the fearful in Christ. Genesis 19, I'm just going to read this story. It's, we, we should read the verses. God purposed to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham interposed. Lord, if, if there's even ten righteous people there, will you spare the city? And God was willing to do it. But there weren't ten righteous. But God did not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He made provision. And what he did is a type of the rapture of the believer. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what was going on there. I'm going to go down and start at verse 14. Because my focus today isn't the wicked men of Sodom. My focus is Lot. A just man. Verse 14, And Lot went out. Lot was told by the angels, You need to get your stuff in order and get out because God's going to throw, overthrow this city. And what did he do first? He had wife, he had daughters, and he had sons-in-laws that were married to daughters. He had daughters at home and he had sons-in-laws that were married to daughters. He had loved ones there. 
So when he knew God was going to destroy the city, this is what he did in verse 14. He didn't leave first. He putzed around, but he putzed around for a good reason. He went out and he spake unto his sons-in-laws, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. You know, we can give Lot credit. God was going to deliver him. But he still took the time to go out and warn his family so they too could be delivered. He wasn't packing his gear. All right, I'm out of here. I'm safe. He took time to go warn his family. You've got to come with me. And what happened? His sons-in-law thought, this guy was crazy. Man, you're a conspiracy theorist. Man, this guy's crazy. What are you talking about? It reminds me of an old song written by Barry McGuire in the 60s. But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, that you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Isn't that most of the church today? And we're what, uh, 30, 55 years closer (laughs) than old Barry? I don't know if Barry's still alive or not. I don't know if you even know him. I know Tim knows who Barry McGuire is. We like that old Christian music back when it was a ministry. I mean, these people, these sons-in-law, I mean, they, they were just like, their response was like what a lot of so-called Christians would say toward us right now. When we go out and preach and we preach the gospel, you guys are crazy. Or we think you ought to think long and hard before taking some shot in your arm or all of this. Oh, you know, you're just a conspiracy theorist. But they seemed as one that mocked. He seemed as one that mocked. And when the morning arose, verse 15, then the angels hastened Lot, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here. That's an interesting phrase. Get your two daughters that are here with you. He had other daughters that were married to his sons-in-law. They wouldn't have been living at home with Lot. He went out to the sons-in-laws who were now responsible for his other daughters and said, you've got to get your families out. Come on, you're crazy. So Lot had other daughters, but the ones that are here, get them and go, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, he was messing around, pilfering, trying to make sure he had everything. Everything I do every Sunday morning when it's time to go to church, I'm in there lingering and doing this, and my wife's already sitting in the car. I can relate. And the angels laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, O Lot, Not so, Lord. Behold, now thy servant has found grace in thy sight and has magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. I can't go to the mountain. Don't make me go up to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. So here God's getting ready to pour down fire from heaven and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's given an avenue to escape, and what's he worried about? Oh, man, don't make me go up to the mountain. Sounds like Christians and some of their COVID fears. Sounds like it to me. We learn a lesson in this a little bit later. God will always be merciful and not only deliver us, but teach us a hard lesson. 
It's always better to listen to God first. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And the angel said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also. I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Get out of here. Just go. Escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come thither. In other words, I can't do anything here in Sodom until you are gone. That's what the angel said. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Lot was allowed to flee into this little town of Zor. Okay, I'll spare it, but you, I can't do anything until you're gone. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and therefore sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Sodom and the cities of the plain could not be destroyed. God could not or would not rain his destruction on them until Lot and his family were taken out of the way. And why did God take them out of the way? He remembered Abraham. Abraham is a type of Christ, my friends. What did Abraham do before God? He pled for Lot. Why do you think he was so concerned with the righteous living in Sodom? Because he knew Lot and his family were there. Abraham was an intercessor between God and Lot and pled for him. And because Abraham intercessed or interposed for Lot, God delivered him. Isn't that an amazing picture or a type of Christ? What did Christ do? He died on a cross. He paid the price. He shed His blood for our sins. And then He interposed between us and the Father on our behalf. There is one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. Not a pope or a priest. And it's not a pastor. And it sure ain't me. He did what Abraham did for us. And therefore, what will God do? He will deliver us from the wrath. It's an amazing picture. But this isn't something I'm just coming up with of my own mind. This is referenced in 2 Peter. Peter highlights God's deliverance of just Lot. Lot was a just man. But unlike Enoch, who boldly took a stand and preached against sin, Lot was vexed by the filthy conversation of the wicked. He didn't speak up. He tried to buddy up and plead, you know, and no, please don't, please don't. But yet God still delivered him. Guys, the church is weak today. There are those who are standing strong. There are those that are not. But God's mercy is upon the church because of what Jesus has done. It's an amazing type of picture. But 
In 2 Peter, Peter using Lot as an example says, the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous out of His judgment. And He'll do it. That is God's protocol. Same pattern, same protocol. We see it time and time again in the Scriptures. God remembers His people and He delivers them. Guess what? God remembers Christ Jesus and what He did on the cross on our behalf. And therefore, we'll deliver His church from the wrath to come. Now, my friends, don't make any mistake. That doesn't mean you won't suffer. That doesn't mean you won't have hard times. Look at the persecuted church around the world. But there's a big difference between the wrath of wicked men and the wrath of the devil versus the wrath of God. The wrath of the devil and wicked men's all around, but it's the wrath of God that's coming. And because of Jesus, we are not appointed to wrath. Just like because of Abraham and his intercession, Lot, even despite his faults, should have never gone down there in the first place, was delivered. The story of Lot gives us some interesting side lessons. I read up until verse 39, but look what happens in verse 30. Remember, Lot was weak. He didn't just trust the Lord like Mary did when the angel came. Please don't make me go to the mountain. Something bad will happen to me there. Okay, fine. I'll let you go to your little town. But get out of this city. I can't do anything until you're gone. Well, look what happens in verse 30. Where did Lot go? He went to Zor, the little town. But guess what he ended up doing? And Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt where? In the mountains. He ended up going where God told him to go in the first place. Sometimes God will let us have our way. He's let me have my way before, and I wish I'd have just listened in the first place. So Lot ends up where God purposed anyway. We often give Lot's daughters a hard time. Oh, gosh, you know, they got their dad drunk and ended up having incest and so they could have children. And, you know, we like to judge all that. That was not an act of faith, and it was the result of things that happened many years later that were a thorn in the side of Israel. But before we judge people in complex situations, we take a long, hard look in the mirror. Why, did, why do you think Lot's daughters did that? Convinced, got their father drunk and slept with him so they could have children. Well, it tells us there um, uh, why. Verse 31, the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come unto us after the manner of the earth. Guys, what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah was so explosive. It was so huge. It was so earth-shattering for them as they fled. They literally thought there was no one else left on earth. They thought God had destroyed everything and they were the only people left on the planet. And so it's like, okay, uh, what do we do now? So we should give them a little grace there. What God did was so powerful They thought there wasn't any men left. So they took matters into their own hands. Sometimes we need to pause. And what we think is not what is real. And if we just pause and study something a little bit, maybe we wouldn't react so quick. That's the lesson there. But we can give them grace because we're guilty of the same thing time and time again. God's protocol throughout history has been to deliver the righteous before He pours out His wrath. That's his protocol. It's throughout the Old Testament. And that's what he does when he delivers his church. It's a type. And guys, sometimes God's deliverance is by death. 
We can't even comprehend that. For the righteous, death is God's deliverance. And that's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. Isaiah 57.1. Even in death is God's deliverance from His wrath. Isaiah 57.1. I like to share this when I think about Miss Bonnie who died on Christmas Eve, that dear old lady who's been wanting to go with the Lord. When I think about that, I'm reminded of this verse. Praise God, she's been delivered from whatever wrath and judgment's coming to this country next year. What's coming's bad. The righteous, per- the righteous perisheth, and no man lays it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, just like Lot, just like Enoch, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. There were... Prophets of God, men of God, who God took them away. Like Enoch, took them out, translated them, like Elijah. And there were those who died. And their death was deliverance. We need to stop thinking of death as believers in Christ who's conquered death as a bad thing. So many Christians today are afraid to go to heaven and be with the Lord. And they're living in fear. We don't need to be like that. God delivers the righteous. Some by their death and some by taking them out. And at the rapture, it's both. Because the dead in Christ will rise first and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Enoch, a type of the rapture of the believer. Lot, a type of the rapture of believer. But those are the two you may be familiar with. But there's another one that's often been overlooked. And it's interesting to see how the one delivered is a Gentile while the one not delivered is a Jew. Very, a very clear picture of what's coming with the church and Israel and the tribulation. Turn to Jeremiah 38. This was as the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonian army. God's judgment was coming. It was on the cusp. It was unknown at what day or what hour the judgment would there be a breach in the city and the city be overthrown. It was a period of unknown. Jeremiah was preaching. His message was you, even to the king, was you need to go out and you need to submit to the king of Babylon because this judgment is coming. If you'll just submit, I will protect your lives and you will be blessed. But if you try to stop this, you will perish. And Jeremiah had the guts to preach these things, not only before the king, but also before the the political magistrates and the governors And they didn't like it. Even when the city's surrounded by an army and and the end is inevitable, they still didn't want to hear it. Chapter 38. We see the treatment of Jeremiah is very similar to what a Bible preacher would see today. Then Shephthiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and Jukal, the son of Shilamiah, and Pasher, the son. These These were government officials there in Jerusalem heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken unto the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, He that remains in this city will die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey and shall live. In other words, those of you hiding out in the city because you're scared of famine or you're scared of pestilence, a virus, or you're scared of the sword, when you hide out in here, you're going to die. If you'll go out and submit, you'll live. 
Thus saith the Lord, this city will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said unto the king, we beseech thee, let this man, we need to put this preacher to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war that remain in this city and the hands of all the people in speaking such words. We need to silence this preacher because he's bad. He's troubling us. He's making us weak. Doesn't that sound like what Ahab called Elijah? Oh, you're the one that troubles Israel. What the king said to Amos the prophet, go back to your own land. You're just, you're just troubling us. That's what they say about a preacher. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but their hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he's in your hand. For the king is not that he can do anything against you. In other words, do what you need to do. I can't stop you anyway. Go ahead, whatever you want to do. Then they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon that was in the court of the prison. And they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. They threw the preacher in the dungeon. No food. And he sunk in the mud. Now guess what? Somebody takes a stand on behalf of the preacher. Not who you would think. But Ebed-Melech, who was in... Now Ebed-Melech, verse 7, the Ethiopian. Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, the black Gentile, the black man the one that was just a little servant whose opinion didn't matter much, not the princes, not the people with the power, not the people with the influence over the king, the black servant. What did he do? He took a stand. Now, Ebed-Melech, one of the eunuchs, which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. The king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin. The king was out in the gate. What did this servant, this eunuch do? He went forth out of the king's house and spake to the king, saying, He interposed. My lord the king, these men have done evil in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is. There is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence 30 men with thee and get or take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took thence old cast clouts and rotten rags. They tied together a bunch of rotten rags and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armholes, armpits. That's an old word for an armpit. It's an armhole. I mean, as a martial artist, I appreciate that because there are some really painful pressure points in your armhole. And you could subdue a man in his armhole. Isn't that what an armpit is? It's a hole in there. Sometimes the wisdom of the Bible amazes me. It's an armhole. They put these rags under his armpits and they drew up Jeremiah, verse 13, with cords and took them out of the dungeon and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian, an African, a Gentile, who was a eunuch in the king's court, just a servant, not a politician, no authority, no power, he went to the king and rebuked him for what was done to Jeremiah and said, you've got to get him out of there. And the king listened. This Ebed-Melech interposed for Jeremiah, God's prophet. 
And because of this act, what does God say about this man, this Gentile? Verse 16 of chapter 39. Jeremiah was shut up in the court of the prison until the day the city was broken into. And Jeremiah was one of the first things he did after he was rescued was he was told to go to this Ebed-Melech. God did not forget what this faithful Gentile had done. Verse 16, go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the God we preach is the God of Israel. That's the creator God. Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. I'm going to judge this city. But I will deliver thee. I'm going to deliver you, Ebed-Melech. I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. I'm going to deliver you before this city falls, and you won't be delivered into the hands of the Babylonians. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be a prey unto thee, because why? Because thou hast put thy trust in me. It was the Ethiopian's trust in God that compelled him to speak up on behalf of the prophet. And because of his trust in God, God was going to deliver him out before that judgment came. Now you might say, well, God delivered Jeremiah too. And you know, what do you mean? No. Yeah, God did deliver Jeremiah. God preserved him through the judgment. But he didn't deliver him out so that he wasn't given over into the hands of the Babylonians. Jeremiah fell into the hands of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar ordered that Jeremiah be given liberty that other Jews were not allowed, but he still came and went under the authority of the governor that the Babylonian king put in charge of the land. And then when those rebellious Jews decided they didn't want to live in the land anymore, they wanted to go back to Egypt... And then they came to Jeremiah, oh, give us God's word. What should we do? When they'd already made up their mind what they were going to do, and they ended up going to Egypt in disobedience, and God warned them against it, what did they do? They grabbed Jeremiah and took him with him. Jeremiah ended up in Egypt. He had no choice. They, they captured him and kidnapped him. So all the days of Jeremiah's life, he was under that judgment and the effects of it, but like Noah, God preserved him through it. Ebed-Melech, however, the Gentile, was delivered out. He didn't fall into the hands of the Babylonians. We don't know what that looks like, but God said, because you trust in me, you are going to be delivered out of the judgment. Jeremiah was kept shut up in the court of the prison until the city fell. And then after the city fell, God was gracious, gave him liberty, but it was still under the authority of the Babylonians. And then when the people, the rebels captured him, they kidnapped him and took him to Egypt against his will. But what I find very interesting, not so in this prophecy to Ebed-Melech, is the words that are used. But I will deliver thee. That Hebrew verb there. It's the same word I can't even read my own... Oh, I'm sorry. I can't even read my own chicken scratch here. It's the same word there in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. 
in the Hebrew New Testament. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they, he commends them for waiting for the Lord who has delivered them from the wrath to come. The church has been delivered from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is that judgment, that time of Jacob's trouble, that tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us. It's as good as done. He can speak about a future event in the past tense. He delivered us from the wrath to come. It's the same Hebrew word in the Hebrew New Testament we give to the Israelis. That is right here when God tells Ebed-Melech, I will deliver you. And then you get down to verse 18. He says, I will surely deliver thee. A second time, now it's the same word in English, but it's a different Hebrew word in verse 18. It's a verb that appears also in the New Testament, in, in the Hebrew translation, in 1 Thessalonians 3. Or I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. No, that's not right. I'm sorry. I can't read my own chicken scratch. It's a five, not a three. I wrote five, and I'm reading it as a three. Man, that's sloppy handwriting. First Thessalonians 5, 3, what does it say? After Paul preaches to the Thessalonians about the rapture of the church, then he talks about the judgment that's coming. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, for when they shall say peace and safety, just like... The days of Noah, eating, drinking, giving in marriage. Sudden destruction cometh upon who? Them. All up through chapter 4 when he's talking about the rapture and the deliverance of the believer. It's us, 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 us. Now the pronoun changes. Now he's talking about them, somebody else. That's important. For when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The wicked won't escape what the church has escaped. That verb escape is the same Hebrew verb in the Hebrew New Testament that appears in verse 18 regarding Ebed-Melech. I will surely deliver thee. What God's going to do for us, what He did for the Ethiopian, is not what's going to be done for the wicked. So there's a direct link there. We have a seed there in the life of Ebed-Melech, the Gentile, taken out, raptured out of the judgment that came upon the city. Jeremiah, the Jew, the faithful prophet, preserved through that judgment. A type of the church, the Gentile unit, a type of Israel, the nation who will be judged and woke, wake up and preserved. Jeremiah. We have these types in the scriptures. I've, um, bear with me just a moment. I've given you a seed, seeds from the law. I've given you seeds from the prophets. There's also seeds in the writings or the Psalms. Those are the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all testify of me. Let's end today with Psalm 27. So I've been talking about types that point to anti-types. Next week, we'll look at direct references. There are direct prophetic references in the Old Testament 
to a rapture of God's people before the tribulation judgment. So we're just talking about types now. This is just a one point. First part of a two-part message. But let's end with Psalm 27 because it is a type of the believer delivered. The believer who believed he would be delivered and that belief in that deliverance affected his behavior. I don't want to read the whole thing, but if you look at Psalm um, 27, I should turn there, I guess. I'm in Proverbs still. Psalm 27, it's David. And the first six verses of this psalm, David is preaching. He has confidence. He believes what he's been told of the Lord. And then the rest of the psalm is what he does as a result of what he claims to believe. Therefore, because of what he believes, he, is, he prays, he cries out to the Lord. It affects his actions. But look at Psalm 27, verse 5. What does God say? What is David confident about concerning God? For in the time of trouble, what is the time of trouble? When the enemies of the Lord arise, when the wicked are judged, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, Shall he hide me? David was confident that in a time of God's judgment, God would hide him in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall set me upon a rock. What did Jesus say in John 14? In my Father's house are many mansions, pavilions, tabernacles. I go to prepare a place for you. David was confident that God would... Take a righteous man and hide him in the time of trouble. This is what sustained him. Verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says this to us or to the reader. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I see on, say on the Lord. Here we have a believer that was confident God would deliver him and hide him in the day of his wrath, and he was willing to wait upon it. He was waiting for it. What are we to wait for? What does the psalmist tell us we are to wait for? Wait on the Lord, but wait for what? Verse 5, he's going to hide me in the time of trouble. There we have a seed. It's funny because if you read the opening of this psalm and you think about David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. That was God's man. A man after God's own heart would not fear. He knew God would deliver him and he was content to wait for it. This is the same David when he came upon the Israelites on the field of battle and the Philistines on the other side of the valley of Elah and there was Goliath out there taunting them every day. David, the shepherd boy, is like, who is this guy coming out here taunting us? 
Stand up against him. And everybody was afraid. And he's like, let me do it. Let me handle it. And they're like, oh, you know, you can't go fight this guy. And what did David say? He said, look, I tended my father's sheep. I was a shepherd. I looked after the sheep. And when a bear or a lion came, I went out and I slew the bear and the lion to protect the sheep. That's quite the opposite of the COVID Christian pastor today. He cares more about himself than he does his sheep. We're supposed to go out and stand between the lion and the bear and our flock if we're a shepherd of God's people. That's what David did. And it, he, he not only wrote it and said it, he lived it. David lived what he's writing right here. He lived it in the sheepfold and he lived it on the field of battle before an insurmountable foe. So David has a right to say it because he, he lived it. And what does he say? In the time of trouble, God will hide me. Therefore, you too wait on the Lord and be of good courage. We have that mystery. God's deliverance of the righteous. Hiding them in his pavilion. That is exactly what God does when he raptures his church. And we're going to see that directly stated next week in the prophets in Isaiah. That's what he does. The seed is there. The mystery is veiled there. But I like this word wait, and I'm going to end with this. When you see the word wait in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that we translate wait, it is its counterpart in the New Testament is the word faith. In the New Testament, we're told, we talk about belief, belief. Belief, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief leads to faith. When we believe something, we have faith. And that shows itself in how we conduct our lives. In the Old Testament, the saint was implored to trust in the Lord. So the New Testament word belief has its counterpart in the Old Testament, trust. What does believe mean? It means to trust. It doesn't mean to assent to some facts. Believe has a counterpart, trust. Believe in Greek, counterpart in Hebrew, trust. Faith has a counterpart as well. It's weight. What better evidence of trust in the Lord than to be willing to wait for Him? What better evidence of faith than a life that doesn't react but responds and is willing to wait for God to do what he says he's going to do. That doesn't mean you sit around and do nothing. A faithful servant waiting on his Lord, Jesus said, is busy about his present duties, is doing what he's been commanded to do faithfully. But guys, are we willing to wait on the Lord? That's an Old Testament counterpart that is really a good definition of what faith looks like. I had the privilege of sharing that with the young lady. Um on my travels. A young lady that came out with us one day, I don't remember, I think it was in Minnesota, we wanted to do some preaching on a college campus. And she confessed to us that she was struggling with what it means to trust the Lord. She, she believed, but she struggled with trust. And I explained to her that the essence of trusting is waiting. Content to wait and be happy with. And not try to figure things, everything out. God's word is true and we can trust him and we can wait upon him. And that's what he calls us to do in Jesus Christ. God's going to deliver his people. 
God has delivered his people from the damnation of sin and hell in what Jesus did on the cross. He's going to deliver us from the wrath that he's going to pour out on this planet. And we need to be those that trust that and are willing to wait and be content. If we don't see God execute the justice we want to see right now in this wicked country, are we willing to wait and pray for it and be busy about our duties as we wait? That's the question. We know Christ is coming for his church. That ought to compel us to wait patiently and be busy about the work, not hiding out in our homes. Fake Christians hide in fear. True believers are wise as serpents, harmless as doves, but they're busy about their father's business just like Jesus. But why can we wait on the Lord? Why can we trust him? Because of what he's already done. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was buried and he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. He paid the price for our sins. Peter says the just suffered for the unjust in our place that we could be made right with God. And that's why salvation is freely given and freely received. Christ paid the price on the cross and he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness instead of a kingdom. Salvation is free, but it's not all automatic. God commands us to repent of our sins and put our trust in the Messiah. Just like Abraham put his trust in God. Just that Lot, like Lot did when he did what his sons-in-laws wouldn't do. He got out. Just like Ebed-Melech the Gentile did. He trusted in the Lord. God commands us to repent and believe and trust because of what Christ Jesus has done. It's free, but it's not automatic. God gives you a choice to make. Only God can open your eyes. But if you'll humble your, himself, he will. And then it's free, but it's not cheap. It costs the Son of God His blood for you. It's free, but it's not automatic. It's free, but it's not cheap. Because of that, we can have hope, not only in eternal life, but deliverance from God's wrath. I like to say this when I'm preaching. You young people would be wise to heed it. Only Jesus Christ can save you to God. Only Jesus Christ can save you to a relationship with Him. Only Jesus Christ can save you from God. Guys, you need to be saved from Him because His white hot wrath is coming and He's justified in that. And you might say, well, that's not my God. Well, I don't care what your God is. It really don't matter what I say. God is who He's revealed Himself to be. And God judges sin. And he judges wickedness. And he's going to judge this wicked country, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, because we've all turned our back on him and we've all provoked him to wrath. His judgment's coming. But you can be delivered by Jesus Christ. You can be saved from your sin. You can be changed. God doesn't say, do something and then I'll accept you. God says, I will receive you and I will accept you upon your confession of faith in my son and I will change you. It's not do and be saved. The gospel is it's been done. Partake of it. I can change you. He changed me. I was a wicked sinner. I was a chief of all sinners in my rebellious spirit. You may not have thought so, but I knew what my wicked heart was. 
Every ten, uh, one of the Ten Commandments I've broken, if not with my hands, I've broken it with my heart. God was merciful to me just like he was to Lot. And he can be merciful to you too. But guys, the seeds of this mystery, this imminent coming of Christ for his church are right there in the Old Testament. We see it in the lives of Enoch and Lot and Ebed-Melech. We see it in the way David preached and lived his life. That's the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all three parts of the Old Testament. We're also going to see it in direct prophetic reference next week. So I'll continue next week. We're going to talk about some passages there in Isaiah, in the prophet. And we're also going to look at um, some uh, the Psalms again. And we're going to go back to the law. We're going to go back to Leviticus. So I hope you're encouraged by these things today. I'll just close this in prayer. I'm sorry I ran a little late. But we're going to go on and continue with our baptismal service. And then we're going to eat in fellowship together. God, thank you for your word which was preached today. I pray your name was glorified. I'm just an unprofitable servant, Lord. When a servant does what his master commands, he doesn't deserve praise. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And so, Lord, I just pray that in spite of my weakness, in spite of my frailty, in spite of my own foolishness, that you've used this word that was preached today. I pray you would encourage everyone here today, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who has not partaken of your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ and your forgiveness that they would cry out to you whether they be young or old lord i pray for our children in here that they would come to know you those that haven't and um lord i just pray now in these ensuing moments that in the baptism an outward picture of an inward change and the food we're going to partake a gift of you and our fellowship that your name would be glorified thank you for jesus he's coming soon and thank you god that you hide the righteous, you hide your people in your pavilion and you deliver them from your wrath. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.